Does I, it? I watched the G-rated <laughs> version. Did, did you? Uh, yeah, musical it was animals. Over Fifteen minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I do actually feel robbed uh, because we we do not have the uh, the unrated, unrated cut. cut. Yeah, so we're we're missing uh, quite a bit of Mark Ruffalo penis. Get a lot. Uh, well, there's a lot I got. Yeah. Dalton wants more. More <sighs> of that incredible. I actually missed it. <laughs> Which is the thing that happens with a lot of movie dong for me. It happened the first time I watched The Power of the Dog. I missed that Cumberbatch dong. I oh I, okay. I guess it's technically not Ruffalo's that we I saw quite a bit of. And I'm trying to remember. Did you guys watch the RN58 mer- version? I watched what was on Voodoo. What's on Voodoo? Which is the so, R-rated version. I, I did not watch it on Voodoo, so I'm I'm uncertain as to which version I actually ended up seeing. Are you too good to watch it on Voodoo with the rest of us? I was watching it on I'm my phone. Spit good money. I was watching it on my phone. <laughs> That's probably fair. So I was in a hurry. Wait, did you really watch it on your phone? Yeah, I, I, was, I did two As things. As Jane Campion Jesus desired. Christ. I did two things at once. I really enjoyed it. It was a good time. You okay. watched In the Cut and the Net at the same time. I, I did not. Sandy, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the Ruffalo stuff's pretty kind of obscured by lighting. Uh, well, you that, just see okay, it in silhouette and I stuff. did see obscured, okay, that scene. I was thinking the uh, early fellatio scene that there was... Pretty extensive. Well, there's no dong in that. <gasps> okay. Well, he um, saw the unrated cut. I no. saw the unrated cut. Nice. I nice. did. Well, the yeah, IMDb uh, trivia did. alludes to that cut in ah. its parents' guide. That's interesting. So, um, yeah, I, that I, must be an unrated. I got cut. the whole show. That's too bad. Uncut. I, I, well, I wouldn't know. I didn't see it. I. <laughs> I enjoyed my movie. I don't know what else to say about that. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Just Welcome. in the shadows watching in the gut on his phone. <laughs> Stay away, little kids. <laughs> don't Welcome. come near me. <laughs> Welcome, my friends, to the Good Trash Honor Cast. We gather around a table. We watch the films you'll never watch in a film says course. And that's an unfortunate thing if that is the case of Jane Campion's in the cut. But maybe you would in certain circumstances. I certainly hope. If you are talking about it in your film studies course, you've got a good professor. Is what I'll say. Yeah, that's that, valid. That is valid. Um, I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I am still Dalton. And if you are tuning into this show for the very first time, we want to warn you, dear listener, this is not a review show. It is an analysis show. And that means we will spoil the ending, which I came dangerously near at one point already in this show. Uh, well, we're going to try to avoid that for the first part of the show. We're well, also going to be very curious if he's got a different ending than we got. Oh, okay. I don't think I, don't, I do that. I no. think it's the same okay. ending. Okay. Yeah, the no. novel has a different ending gotcha. than we got. Oh, the, oh, I didn't about. look up the novel. I should have. Uh, but anyway, uh, we'll have synopsis. We'll have thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. We'll have a little exercise called Explain the Syllabus. Those will all be very spoiler gentle. And then we'll get down to business. And that is the spoiler heavy zone. You have been warned. That is the unrated version of the podcast. And there are a lot of spoilers to be had in this movie. I think there are. There's chock-a-block full of red herrings, this picture. It is, yes. it is much full of mystery and, yes, dead ends. And so we're going to get through all of that, though, once we get there. But until then, you have a brief report. If you have not caught this film from 2003, question mark? Yeah, you got it. And uh, so, anyway, there's your warning. You have now been warned. Dr. Arthur Gordon, delight us with your synopsis, please. An aimless English teacher gets drawn into a dangerous affair with a troubled detective working the case of a serial killer in New York City. That's what it's about. Get a rope. All, I can get a rope. Um, yes, all of those things are true. So with Thank that, you. Um, I have not seen it, truth. you have not seen it, and you have not seen it, correct? It's the first time for all of us. So, Dalton, you get to tell us first. Do you like it or not? I'm happy to start. Do you I, like it in the cut? <laughs> I, I, oh, boy. <laughs> Arthur, this, this movie... This movie has some of the best lines of dialogue ever committed to film. One of which is about liking it in the cut. And of course, me and uh, Rebecca both looked at each other and said, that's in the cut. <laughs> yes. Good. Uh, yeah, this is this movie rules. Uh, I, I pushed for us to do this movie. We we uh, we almost didn't talk about it because it came off of streaming. And I, I really did say, no, I got to talk. You about fought this. for it. I did. Well, I, I listened to Blank He's Check. a campion champion. I have become a bit of a campion champion over the past couple of months between getting into The Power of the Dog and catching up with the piano finally. And uh, I listened to them cover this on Blank Check. And I, I when I heard the line, no sense of cock whatsoever, I knew I had to see in the cut. 
when they talked about that line on that episode, I was like, well, this is a picture that I simply must watch. If you're not aware yet, this episode is going to be NSFW. Yeah, this is going to be a pretty filthy one. Uh, and it's just because this is a movie that is very frank about sexuality. Uh, it's something that we don't get out of American movies very often. And it is something that in 2003, the American public was not ready for from Meg Ryan. And uh, this movie did not go over very well uh, at, upon initial release. It had its defenders, uh, but a pretty bad critical response and a terrible uh, general audience response with that dreaded F Cinema score. Uh, but I, I think this is great. I, you know, lots of New York trash. What a grimy movie. Just ba- just bags of trash as soon as we start. No, no sentimentality for New York whatsoever. And I really do love that. Just the scuzziest bar bathroom you've ever seen. Absolutely great. Texture. Or just a bar bathroom. Well, that's true. I mean, you don't have to go all the way to New York to find a terrible. No, that just bathroom. looked like a realistic bar bathroom. To yeah, me. I've seen some pretty gross bar bathrooms yeah. in this city. That is kind of what they look like. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan of this. Um, a lot of good texture, both in terms of like production design, but also from the character performances. I, I feel like everybody just feels like a very real person uh, with real foibles, real you know flaws. Uh, and, and real personality quirks. Uh, Jennifer Jason Lee is a hoot as this sort of a mess of a sister. Uh, and Meg Ryan is giving a really good performance that I think it's, it's just surprising to me that people didn't like it at the time. It's just they're not, again, not ready for this kind of performance from her, this sort of naturalistic, uh, very sensual performance that you know they weren't ready for well, Mark it's a break Ruffalo. between persona and performance that yeah they can't yeah. handle yeah. which again in 2003 i you know i look i was not part of the the larger film going public at that point i guess i could see you know the people who were out at the pictures and where's the email from tom hanks exactly where are the exactly. lovely bouquets of sharpened pencils <laughs> and this has only been a few years since that you know it's an interesting time <laughs> for her career you gonna be okay no no arthur got you on that one <laughs> anyway, uh, humble spoiler movie. <laughs> I am a big fan of this. Uh, I think the the more time we spend talking about its interesting themes, the better. So I'll, I'll go ahead and put a, a pin in all of my my thoughts for now. Other than to say, uh, yeah, everybody's performance is great, uh, including an uncredited Kevin Bacon. Uh, the fun fact about this movie that I will share is that uh, the the only way you can get a Blu-ray version of this movie is to buy a Kevin Bacon box set. <laughs> There's a uh, Six Degrees of Separation or something like that box set, and uh, this is one of uh, the films in that set, and it's the only way that it's ever been released as a Blu-ray, which I think is a damn shame. Criterion Collection for In the Cut, when? That's what I want to know. Uh, yeah, this movie rules. All right, thank you very much for that. Uh, Mr. Dalton Stewart, Mr. Arthur Gordon, do you like In the Cut? <laughs> Um, I don't mean a pun, but I keep laughing at it now because you've done a thing. <laughs> hey, the movie set it up for me. I, I, I just got to pay off the joke. Um, yeah, it's solid. I, I mean, man, I, I, I told sells this Dustin off. The, uh, we've gotten in the habit of referring to each other by the last names mm-hmm, in our day true. jobs. Um, I told Dustin this. Uh, this movie opens uh, with the most unsettling and haunting cover of K. Sarah Sarah. Uh, mm-hmm. I've ever heard a lot of dissonant uh, chords in there. Yeah, yeah. And it's I mean, lyrically, uh, it seems super normal, but the actual musical arrangement is bizarre and haunting and ethereal, and I, I think it sets the tone incredibly well for what what is to follow over the next hour and forty five minutes. Um, it is uh, it is grimy and tense and terse, uh, and everybody is super flawed. Uh, and, and it is very aggressive in, in those moments. And so it, it, I could see why a general audience would push back against it, I think, just from that alone. Um, it is very hard, I think, just to watch this kind of relationship that develops between Ruffalo and McRyan. But again, I think putting that idea of you know rom-com Ryan uh, in this setting is also you know that that pushback as well. I, I do think I could see her performance maybe come across as wooden at times because of that more natural style or realistic style that she is trying to go for here. Uh, I think it works. Uh, she has a great moment um, in the, I guess, top of the third act into the second act uh, where she sees something on a bed and looks back over her shoulder. And in her face, you can tell immediately 
that she knows the world has just crumbled mm-hmm. around her mm-hmm. and the look in her face. Mm-hmm. And I think that those those moments of acting uh, across the board, and we kind of talked about that with Gyllenhaal uh, when we did Enemy, uh, another actor who's very good at just using his body language to portray so much. A movie with a surprising amount in common with this one. Yeah, I think so. At least thematically. For yeah, me. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but Ryan's, uh, just her visual language, her, her body language throughout really does a lot of the character work for her, I think, and who this character is. And that's really accent, accented by stuff like wardrobe design and, and makeup and, and stuff, costuming that we don't normally talk about a lot, but I think that also goes into that, that idea of the mise-en-scene uh, which really builds out this world in unspoken ways to add to the themes, to add to the characters. And so I think it does all those things really well. Um, I, I like everybody in this cat. Ruffalo's great. Bacon is such, uh, that is such an interesting turn uh, from Kevin Bacon. I, I like it, but it is wild. Mm. That, that whole relationship that's at play there with uh, Bacon and Ryan is also super uh, interesting as well. It's absolutely fantastic stuff. Yeah, I mean, just an all-time great w- weird guy performance. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, I think you know I'm a big sucker for uh, for mysteries and serial killers and and cop dramas and bad relationships, and I think this really delivers on all those elements. And I think uh, it's super solid. You know, it's one I kind of wanted to get around to, not as much as Dalton maybe, but. Uh, always was kind of interested once I kind of knew more about it um, to to check it out. So I'm glad we got it here on the table to uh, to talk about in the cut. Yeah, calling it seven but horny is reductive but not inaccurate. And Dustin, do you like it in the cut? <laughs> <laughs> well, seven but horny is a good word uh, and correct. And I like seven and, you know... <laughs> But what, if it were hornier? but what if it were hornier? I mean, not a bad idea, really. And to use Meg Ryan playing I, against I think type... we're detracting from how horny Seven is. <laughs> <laughs> it is a little bit. That's yeah, a movie that makes you want to it's check. one of the sins. There, there is a, a lost murder. You want to check on David Fincher every time you watch it. You yeah, go, oh. it's like, oh man, wellness check, yeah. Yeah. It is uh, problematic in many ways. But, and this movie, I, I do like the idea of... A transgressive world going on under the the sort of general notice of the public. I, I really thought a lot about David Lynch's Blue Velvet, honestly, mm. watching this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, not because in any way is it stylistically or even thematically similar, other than that opening sequence of the white picket fence and then the bugs under and then off we go. Here in this case, we have, again, a generally kind of wholesome life that this English teacher is living. She's got her sister slash best friend, Jennifer Jason Lee, who's got lots of problems and I never did quite understand or totally solve the problem of their relationship because she tells a story about her mother. They're half siblings. They're half siblings. Yeah, it gets said at one point. From okay. Well I just I didn't know who the half or where the half went. Uh they're same dad. Same dad. Yeah. So yeah. The, the killer dad. Or possibly killer dad. Well, just the uh, the philanderer dad. The philanderer dad. Uh, yeah, because he kills her sort of in- indirectly, I suppose. But anyway, he's sort of named as responsible for the death of their mother. Or, I guess, uh, Meg, Meg Ryan's, Ryan's mother. mother. Anyway, uh, I, I like this idea that, you know, there's a lot going on. And I think she is much le- more so than like a Jeffrey Beaumont in... Uh, Blue Velvet, aware of this seedy underbelly and is not naive in the same kind of way to that. But she does sort of give herself over to transgression, I'll say, to a, to a lesser extent. But, you know, she's sort of violating one of her own rules. I don't know about this cop guy. I don't know about dating this guy. It's not like she doesn't date. Not like she doesn't know men and doesn't go and see men. But she does feel like there's a certain level of danger with this particular guy, that there's a, a number of associations, even though she has misassociated a particular association with this man. Uh, and that's going to be plotty and spoilery, and we're going to avoid that for now. She does go ahead and go with it anyway. And so through transgression is brought further deeper into a series of uh, bits of knowledge about a, uh, again, a sort of a dark underbelly in New York. And I like that as a general thematic. And uh, I think it's very well executed in doing that. And of course, then it is very sleazy. It is very, very, I, you know, you talk about it being sexually frank. And of course, I think that's true. Obviously, the sexuality is quite frank in it. But it is also um, obscure, 
it is throughout unexplained, un, un, unknowable, ununderstandable. It mm. remains in some sense really weirdly mysterious as to what people want and what people are interested in and what their motivations it are. It gets how unknowable people are. Yes, yes. And it it, it carry, carries that, that across in a really effective way. And so it, it sort of portrays an intimacy without knowledge, which mm. is mm-hmm. interesting uh, as an idea. Yeah, uh, there's... A, okay, yeah. Well, we're... I, I, yeah, I'm not going to gild the lily. The, a theme that I think is really strong in this movie is just like the the when navigating the world as a woman, you have to assume that every man you meet is dangerous. Right, you just have no choice but to. And, and uh, I think this this movie does a really good job of letting that theme live and breathe. Yeah, and, as you've said, like it, it has that air of mystique because people are mysterious and, mm-hmm. and unknowable. Yeah, absolutely. And and I find that really really fascinating. And so I, I think it's a, a very watchable, although again at times difficult to watch, uh, but a very um, satisfying film. It's engrossing. Encounter. Engrossing, absolutely. And again, it's it's got a good mystery. It's got a good mystery at its heart, and it is uh, as we've already mentioned. So visually, it's achieving all these things in terms of performance, and in terms of set design and decoration, mise en scène, as uh, Arthur has said earlier. And at the whole time, it's super plotty. Super plotty in that engrossing kind of way. And so it's like the best of the airport novel, the best of the sort of extreme kind of dark underbelly visual style uh, kind of cinema, the best of feminist cinema in terms of an intellectual uh, place of beginning. All of those things put together in this sort of poison bouquet, mm. uh, which I I thoroughly enjoyed. So it uh, yes, it, it does. Um, it passes on all scores for me. Arthur, I mentioned the makeup, and there's a makeup detail that I, I want to make sure we get in that. The, the, it's uh, the injury makeup on Meg Ryan mm-hmm. after she gets hit by mm-hmm. the car. She gets jumped and yeah. you know uh, mugged and then hit by a cab trying to escape the mugging. And yeah, her, her makeup for that injury develops. And just you know, I love that kind of shit, man. Yeah. That's, that's just good filmmaking. Absolutely. That's a good makeup team. So there you go, uh, dear listener. Our thoughts are generally pro, but we're going to do something new now, and that is the second part of our show, which is called Expanding the Syllabus. Dalton, can you explain that? I sure will. Expanding the Syllabus is the portion of this program in which we deliver on our show's promise. We're going to talk about the films you would never discuss in a film studies course, but we're going to do it in a film studies course type way, or an academic type way. We might not necessarily be doing a film studies course on any given week. Uh, I think at least I am this week going to be doing something film studies adjacent. But at the very least, we're going to bring an academic lens to the movie of the week and try to talk about it that that light, that elevated way. And again, as, as you've alluded to, I think... This is a movie that bears discussion, uh, as far as ac- academically uh, speaking. Um, so we're maybe cheating a little bit on this Jane Campion film, but I think it's sort of uh, dismissal upon initial release is, is what qualifies it as a, the movie you wouldn't discuss because it it definitely you know it's not a movie a lot of people are aware of. It has its defenders. It's mm-hmm. sort of having a renaissance right now, and it's struggled in terms of uh, home media distribution, exactly. as you've already mentioned. That's yeah. another another really difficult thing about uh you know getting it watched for people is just availability yeah uh, but anyway that's that's what expanding the syllabus is dustin well thank you for that do you have your opening um overture into that syllabus prepared my friend i do indeed let's hear it uh we are going to be talking about the dreaded f cinema score this is a class just about films that have received that score uh for those of you who don't know it's a survey of audience goers on opening weekend uh, just to get a letter grade assigned to the movie from general audiences. So really what it's often a sign of is bad marketing, right? The people who were excited about this film and were there on day one who got pulled by pollsters said, boo, big stinker, F- minus for me, uh, which means they probably did not get the movie that they thought that they were going to get, right? That's, that's usually what this is a measure of, because there is definitely a a lot of good to interesting at least films on this list. Uh, there's a currently about 21 films that have received an F cinema score. I believe I won't be talking about all of them. Some of them are, actual you know, F's. actually probably duds. I can't say I haven't seen Yule Bowls alone in the dark starring Christian Slater, but you know, probably uh, it's, it, it's uh, yeah, I'm not. Yeah. A sight unseen. I'm but I'll to tell say you what else has an F. I'll tell you what else has an F. Do tell. Score. I don't know what this uh, is. Mother from Darren Aronofsky. Yep. Wrong. Yeah. Uh, killing them softly uh, with wrong. Brad Pitt. Yeah. So uh, bug the uh, Tracy Letts adaptation with Ashley. Jo- oh, wrong. I'll yeah. tell you what. Wrong. Boys. Bug. I've seen the stage play. Oh, really? <clears throat> I would love to see it as a stage play. The film is really good. Um, so there's also this 99 film called Eye of the Beholder, also with Ashley Judd and a young Ewan McGregor. 
where he plays a spy that uh, facilitates her, a female serial killer, doing more murders because he falls in love with her. That's all I know I've about the movie. I've seen this. You've seen this? It I, sounds incredible. Yes. I was working. I think I just caught it after I knocked off work one day. Uh, we also have the uh, Lindsay Lohan vehicle, I Know Who Killed Me, very famously got mm-hmm. one of these, as well as uh, the remake of Solaris, uh, from Soderbergh. Uh, the final one that I have is the most recent one on the list, and that's The Turning, uh, the Mackenzie mm. Davis starring. Uh, I think it's got Finn Wolfhard, that kid from Stranger Things. Yeah, he's in it too. Uh, it's that adaptation, Turning of the Screw. So those were the ones that I put down on the list. Uh, but again, there's an 21 or so that have gotten it. And I, I think it would just be it's, uh, really interesting to look at the reviews these films got, look at the discourse around these films, especially Mother, I think would be fun just because there's so much contemporary writing on Mother. So such a think PC movie when it came out. But, uh, you know, again, in the cut is having this this resurgence. Uh, obviously, Blank Chat covered it recently on their Jane Campion series. It did a really good job, uh, you know, really getting into the ins and outs of this film. Uh, and then Jordan Searles, who is the, the guest on that episode, is sort of one of the prominent voices as far as championing in the cut right now um so i again i think that just the critical evaluation both at the time and currently in all of these films would be really interesting again you you could easily just as easily call this a um a film festival right as as a film studies course just because such an interesting list of movies has gotten the f cinema score uh, and, and again it is really you know what does it tell us it tells us the audiences got sold one movie and saw something they weren't quite expecting. In, mo- in most cases, that, that's that's what it tells us. But I, I think there's just such an interesting width and breadth of different kinds of movies on the list. Shall we workshop this idea a little bit? Because okay, I, I like what you're doing here, and I like the idea so that you're telling me there are only 21 movies that have ever gotten the F Cinema Score. How long has Cinema Score been in effect? I don't know. At least since the 80s, though, I think. Oh, really? So it's that far back. Okay. I think it's been around for a while. Okay, okay, I'm just curious as to, you know, where your possible selections are. Because I'm thinking about this as not a module or a, a section in the course for a course itself, but as an assignment in a film criticism course. When you're th- Yeah. And, okay. And and, and and sort of the part of the research project is to take the reviews and then look at some other uh, again, reevaluations and that yeah. kind of thing of a film yeah. like that, and use that list of F scoring films as your possibilities. These are your options. Pick one of these films and then write, you know, a, a short, you know, I guess a treatment of yeah. the critical consensus and how it's developed and why it's developed in the way that it has. Yeah, you're absolutely going to be having a take on these movies for this class. Yeah, you're definitely going to be picking one to maybe even more than one to, to really kind of look at under a microscope. Yeah. Uh, because I think that's what the value of this class would be is, is examining both critical reaction, audience reaction, uh, sort of media reaction, because some of these movies have more sort of writing and media response around them than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, the Meg Ryan stuff alone for In the Cut would be really interesting. Right, yeah. Mother as well, you know, they've got all of the, the drama with Aronofsky and, um, oh my God. J-Law? J-Law, thank you, Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, a little brain fart there. But yeah, you've got all that, you know, behind-the-scenes relationship drama. And, you know, killing them softly, like, this is a big Brad Pitt vehicle, hoping to make a lot of money. as a big feature for What's-His-Bucket coming off of uh, the assassination of Jesse James. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that was, you know, a big movie for, for everybody involved. And same within the cut. I mean, this that was going to be the movie that really got Mark Ruffalo up into another uh, league. Uh, and again, it was really did a, a number on everybody involved's career. And again, I think that's something else you can look up these F cinema scores as, you know, how, what's the career impact that it has a bug, I think is a really interesting example. Definitely hurts Ashley Judd's career, which is in a weird spot in the early aughts when bug comes out, Michael Shannon, it sort of slows him down as far as, you know, becoming a household name, which, you know, you could argue he's really not quite a household name even to this day, but it definitely has a, more robust career after bug than before. So um, again, yeah, I think you're right. There's, there's a lot to look at both in terms of initial release uh, as well as, you know, the the longevity, the history, or the legacy of these these given mm-hmm. titles. Well, that and just um, the, the sort of pure bones of what evaluating a good movie is. Yeah, right? exactly. What it's is good? Been around since '79. There you go. I do notice a Robert Altman film up there, which is interesting as well. Um, yeah. So Doctor T and the Women. Oh, yeah, that was, yeah, I should have mentioned Dr. T and the Women just because it's an Altman film, but it's not a film that I'm super familiar with, so mm. I didn't mention it. Well, we don't get our first F until 99, though, so that's... Really? Yeah. Wow. 
That's so funny that it took until 99 for audiences to give an F out. Well, that just means that, tells that you movies lot. were better in the 90s and the 80s. Well, they're more interesting in the aughts, I think. I think audiences are maybe uh, less adventurous in the aughts. Is that what it tells us? Maybe. Yeah, well, I mean, that they probably are looking for more comfort food and more less challenging food mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. the post-9-11 world. So I think there's probably something there. I mean, yeah, just that that we don't get an F until 99. Like, that That's... in and of itself is at least a day of class. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. The, 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 the first four here, Lost Souls, Lucky Numbers is just a comedy with John Travolta. Mm-hmm. But Lost Souls, Fear.com are both generic horror movies. Yeah, that's fair. So, I mean, Solaris, I think that's just, oh, that's not the George Clooney movie I wanted. Yeah. I think it's just more reactionary in that way. I don't know that it's a big ideological issue. I think it's true of maybe a lot of these, Mother especially. That's just not uh, a movie that I think people are prepared for because it is so sort of. And I I mean, I think you get to the backside of here of marketing and, and targeting audiences because, I mean, Paramount releases Mother, yeah, which is very much a, that new indie art house style of A24 and Neon has kind of specialized in, which opens to smaller audiences. But Mother opened pretty big with Paramount's backing. Yeah, I think it had a few, you know, a full thousand screen plus release, if I remember right. So all those J Law fans are showing up and like, oh, this what? is not this? the Hunger Games. Yeah, I mean, that is yeah, a very unconventional. So again, playing film. against type type of thing, and yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, yeah, that's that's. What I the like class that very like. much. I like that very very much. All right, Arthur. Um, what do you think about doing with in the cut? Well, I, I Dalton inspired me a bit uh, mentioning uh, Ryan playing against type, and I like talking about actings and performances. So I think actors playing against type would be a fun way to look at this yeah. and to see kind of how that impacts their career or when it impacts their career. Uh, and I'm going to go back and I want to start with Andy Griffith, um, everybody's favorite dad. Uh, in the Andy Griffith show, um, No Time for Sergeants, uh, he goes out and makes a little movie with Elijah Kazan called A Face in the Crowd, where he plays the bad guy. Um, it's the only time I believe he's played a bad guy, and he was pretty adamant after that movie uh, as to not play a bad guy again because he didn't like how it made him feel. Hmm. Um, that character, uh, who is kind of a Ponzi set up to uh, gain popularity in media, uh, kind of came back into... I think film Twitter's discussions uh, around 2016 for some reason. Um, oh right, but uh, yeah, that's that's kind of noted for his one villainous turn and his uh, something he kind of shied away from. I think for the the rest remainder of his career, his long career, um, where he was notable good guy dad. Uh, and so I'd start with Andy Griffith. I think there uh, I want to talk about Robert Pattinson's post Twilight career. Um, he kind of yeah. got saddled immediately after Twilight with a bunch of these teen drama romance movies. Remember me. Yeah, uh, and, and then he was like, "Nah, I'm gonna do what I want," uh, and he did. Uh, and so I was specifically going to look at the Safdies' Good Times uh, as well as the Lost City of Z, which are two dramatically different performances from him, uh, and both are very different from what we see in Twilight. But in uh, Good Times, he is just a, a lone gun uh, on the run, willing to bring anybody and everybody down with him. An absolute Tasmanian devil. Of a uh, just anarchy unleashed, yeah. really uh, unhinged uh, in the best ways uh, as he is just kind of on this path to no redemption, I think. And we contrast that uh, same year, or close to the same year with The Lost City of Z, uh, where he gets to play a very thoughtful, very mellow, very wise sidekick uh, to, I think, Charlie Hunnam is the lead in that movie yep. uh, there. Uh, and, and so it's interesting to see those two characters kind of side by side in a very close span of time to really see his range and capabilities as an actor uh, and what he is able to do. Obviously, I think you got to talk about Adam Sandler. Uh, you got to talk about Punch Drunk Love, which I'd say is maybe not Sandler playing against type, uh, but... Paul Thomas Anderson knowing how to use that type in a more successful way. That's such a good way to put it, too, yeah. because it definitely is an Adam Sandler performance. Or an Adam mm-hmm. Sandler but he is character. not in an Adam Sandler movie. No. Yes. Yeah, and I totally, think that's what it's works. It's not funny. Yeah. 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 They've yeah. taken that guy and put him in a different movie, and it is a tragedy in some sometimes. But uh, again, a movie that I remember seeing when that came out, and I'm like, oh, and you have Sandler movie. And obviously, Adam Sandler to me is Happy Gilmore, Big Daddy. Yeah. Uh, and that is not... Uh, Punch Drunk Love, uh, and I was not the only person off-put by that turn. You know, critically as loved, but I think casual movie fans are like, it's not an Adam Sandler comedy. Uh, and I think in that regard, it was kind of 
rejected, and he never really went back to that well until a couple of years ago when he does Uncut Gems. Uh, and Uncut Gems. <laughs> Uncut Gems. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think you have to talk about Sandler there and the way he's used in that kind of persona and where that mashes up against the creative forces of somebody like a PTA. Uh, I want to talk about Tom Cruise. Uh, it's not going to be collateral, though. It's going to be Tropic Thunder, where he is under full prosthesis nice. in giving up the hammiest, uh, loudest performance of his career. Sort of a comeback post-couch performance. Yeah, it really kind of revitalized his career. Um, people were like, oh, man, Tom Cruise is great. Where has he been? Uh, and he is, once again, the, the biggest star in the world, I think. Him not taking himself seriously in 2008 is such a huge moment for his career. Yeah. De- that his career desperately needed. He yeah. needed to be perceived He humanized not. him. Yeah. In yeah. a way that... It's been a while. Well, look, when you were behind the veil of the church, it does. Yeah, it sort of puts a damper on your career. Yeah, it makes you do weird stuff like jump up and slap people at award shows. Yeah, it's uh, That's it's sort strange. Of, it's wow. sort of weird how institutions can do weird things to your brain. Why don't he want me, man? <laughs> um. <laughs> I really thought you were going to say Magnolia performance. But, no, um, I did too, but because but, it is sort of an unlikable performance from mm-hmm. Magnolia. But I think the Tropic Thunder one is, yeah. is, is it's a good pick as well. Um, yeah. Then I want to go with Tom Hanks as a cold, calculated killer in The Road to Perdition. Yeah, baby. Very Such much playing one. against uh, this almost America's dad that yeah. he's persona he's developed over the last two decades. Um, but that is one that is, I think, very quiet, very heartfelt, mm-hmm. uh, very tragic in a lot of ways as, as he walks through that movie, um, which is very good. And some San Mendez and one that really want to do on the show someday. And I've pulled the trigger on it yet. Yeah. Roger Deakins shooting on that. God, that movie looks gorgeous. So mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about Sandy Bullock. Uh, I want to talk about Blindside because up until Blindside, Sandy, uh, Sandra Bullock was the um, rom-com lead slash kind of an action person we've yeah. seen speed we'll talk about like thrillers like the net uh she does miss congeniality which is kind of a action rom-com type thing the heat or the things she's known for and then she does this kind of dramatic awards baity turn and it works yeah. because she gets the oscar for it mm-hmm. um and really kind of i think boosts her career and uh, i think she's somebody uh, we'll wind up talking about at some point but um you know it uh it, it really is uh, sh- i feel like she's one of the few actresses female actors who's had the career longevity and name recognition for a extended period of time, uh, along with a Brad Pitt and a George Clooney. She feels like she is in that stratosphere with them because for 30 yeah. years, she has just constantly been in the movies yeah, and, and successfully, I think she's had some stinkers, but yeah, she's just, she's yeah, you're absolutely right. She's, she has stayed in the game. And I think not, not just, especially for female actors, but really for that entire generation of actors for like yeah. sort of Gen yep. X baby boomer yeah. cuspers, like Leo, Brad, uh, I, I can't even think of anybody else on the top of my head, but there, there's such a, there's such a, uh, Denzel. I mean, I think about it. I think the better comparison is maybe a Julia Roberts who is yeah. not. Yeah had that maintained success so kind of step back yeah yeah um kate winslet maybe yeah yeah but again it's but a again, short kind list. of out and back in when the roles change and that's yep. the kind of thing we talk about when we talk about female actors aging is that typically there's a cutoff point where they're not marketable they or anymore, years. and then come back in older mentor mother roles or grandmother roles to round out their career uh sandra's really maintained that and the blind side i think was just a prime opportunity to, for her to add another wrinkle to her resume to say, Hey, I can do this too. If you want me to. Yeah. And, and I think that's, you know, we can talk about white savior narratives and stuff like that. But I, I think for the, that alone, her ability to kind of come in there and do that is important. Oh, I mean, just how a good compelling can performance can carry an otherwise kind of whatever movie. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um, I'm talk- I think another one is Charlie's Theron, a monster. Uh, nice. just, you know, come off this modeling career, does some standard, Hollywood stuff and then really just shifts hard uh, into this big character performance with body alteration and, and heavy makeup to really transform in, into uh, Eileen Warno's character and, and take it to another level and again really develop her career as an actor who can yeah. raise the bar and do 
what she feels needs to be done to get the role right. I think you could argue, does it again with Tully? Just, you know, not too many years yeah. ago now, right? Yep. Does a physical transformation again? So good. Great, great performance. Well, even, too. I mean... And I mean, off the bat of... I was going to say, uh, the... what's is a young adult is the other one she does with Juno Temple. Yes, right. yes. Um, like, not Juno, again, um, Di- not Juno. Diablo Cody. Diablo Cody, yeah. <laughs> Juno, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was thinking Juno. Yeah, Correct. Sure. There was the connection <laughs> yeah. in my head. I understand how it happened. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, the, those dots the, all yeah, connect. The Diablo Cody uh, and uh, what's his doodle, I think. But um, yeah. again, playing kind of very unlikable against type and this very, again, kind of weathered, tired Tully and just a, stacked up a career of really being able to do whatever she wants. I mean, performance-wise, she could really yeah. chameleon herself in anything. Well, as far as somebody who's kind of a contemporary with Cindy Bullock, too. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think very good comparison. Kind of came in, what, like four or five years after the Just fact, by, so they're yeah. really in that mm-hmm. same era. Yeah. Sandra Bullock's early career was, you know, at that time, Shirley's is still a model, right? So mm-hmm. she comes in a little bit later, but yeah, yeah. I, I think they're... It's... it's That's whole class of actors, I yeah. think, is so interesting, just because the movies change so much for that generation in that period. of actors. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's not quite as big a jump as, you know, silent to screen, but sort of the the nineties to superhero changeover is, is definitely like a, an era of movie stars that just nobody else is going to have careers like that. Yeah. It really does. That nineties period feels like the end of, of a certain era. Yeah. Um, and lastly, I want to end with Rachel McAdams who kind of gets a start in some comedy stuff, uh, but then really gets lumped into these romance movies for a long stretch of her career, uh, playing either the, the longing lover, or maybe a, a, a damsel in distress, and something like Trying Red to have Eye. It all in, uh, yeah. What's the intern? No, that's not her. That's um. That's, that's Anne Hathaway. Yeah, but, but she's uh, got one. Morning Glory. Similar. Yeah. Morning Glory. That's what it's called. Right. Yeah, yeah, I mean something like that. Uh, but I really want to talk about her performance in Game Night, where yeah, I she knew, just I knew absolutely nails the comedy. So funny, and in that movie. reminds us all how talented she is as a comedian. Uh, and absolutely steals that movie from a, a very talented cast of comedy performers. Yeah, it, it is definitely a, hey, remember how funny I was in Mean Girls? Yeah. yeah still got it. And uh, just, man, like, where have you been? Like, yeah. why, you know, we could have had this for the last 15 years. That movie kicks ass. It does. <laughs> uh, and so she's she's so good in it. Her timing is money. Uh, she nails the comedy. Uh, and, and hopefully we we would see a... Uh, a, a new run of, of Rachel McAdams comedies post that, but if only here we are. So that's what I would do. Actors against type. And then we would, we'd, we'd have fun with it. Famous one that, uh, I, I don't know if either of you have seen this movie, but it's one that I always think of. You guys seen once upon a time in the West where Henry yes. Fonda plays a child murderer. Mm, yeah. It kept yeah. coming up on the list. I was looking and at Charles yeah. Bronson's yeah. after him. Yeah. 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 I've never, never seen it, but I, I know that that's sort of a famous against type. Yeah, yeah. Ex- exactly. It's a Sergio Leone title that I know. Yeah. But... And Stewart came up a lot for Vertigo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah Stewart's definitely playing against type there. For yeah. sure. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Me? A dirty pervert. <laughs> he's not really. I guess he's kind of a pervert. He absolutely is a dirty pervert. Yeah. You know, baby. he is. You're right. Yeah. I was going to let him off the hook, but I shouldn't. <laughs> which actually brings up my list, which is the <laughs> psychosexual <laughs> film noir and neo noir yeah, specifically. Okay. And so I was thinking in a course that might be dealing directly with film noir as a uh, the whole semester-long 16-week course, and to think about maybe a few sections of neo-noir uh, in which you have different kinds of recapitulations of different kinds of films. And so I think my two base films are Vertigo, which is, I think, the, the heavily psychosexual uh, sort of drama, and then the other side of that psychosexual drama, which is less about obsession and more about webs of deceit crosses and doubles crosses with the postman always drinks uh, always mm, rings twice okay. as sort of the formative these are urtex you know with uh with vertigo in 1958 postman always drinks twice i don't remember the year off the top of my head i want to say it's early 50s but my brain is really but, thought you were gonna go double indemnity on that one double indemnity is good and i think it's a good example of it but i think lana turner is uh more insidious than barbara stanwick in this particular film and i think she's more like unto contemporary neo-noir femme fatales mm-hmm. and so uh we'll we'll see more of that when we get uh, on into it and so that would be the again sort of the er text the the base texts for that. And then, of course, In the Cut is a good example of the same kind of psychosexual drama that you might find in uh, The Postman Always Rings yeah. Twice with a little bit a of vertigo. A movie that's sort of got a himbo fatale. Yeah, yeah it, it does. It? Yes, it does. Yeah. Uh, sort of. 
Anyway, yeah, but there's there's a lot going on there yeah. uh, with that. Uh, then I would think about, well, I mean, honestly, Sharon Stone and... Uh, Fatal Attraction. Not, oh, my God. I about fa- did it, too. It, it, basic Instinct. There we go. Good Gracious, God. goodness me. You, you uh, think we knew how to talk about movies. Right. Uh, but I, I think that's another good example of sure. that uh, same kind of psychosexual drama being played out in this sort of uh, noirish kind of... Uh, milieu, same thing with Blue Velvet. I mm-hmm. think David Lynch's Blue Velvet also very much the investigation and the crime, and also this sort of weird seedy underbelly exploring that. I've already mentioned that in my review, but I think that's that's part of why it was on my mind because I thought I would use it as here as well. And then um, finally, I was thinking quite a lot about Drive because although not sexually explicit, it, it does seem more like vertigo in that sense, mm-hmm. that, that everything's sort of off the page and off the screen. But there's this weird way in which this sort of very, very broken man is trying to figure out how to behave and cannot behave yeah. in a given how, world. How to interact with this this woman that he has, is drawn to. Right. Uh, but yeah, you're definitely a different kind of psychosexual. But I, yeah, as soon as you said, I'm like, yeah, sure, drive. Why yeah, not? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, a very interesting pick. So the, the, those would be the films I would use again. And I'm, I'm thinking this would be a block. And so like, oh, the neo-noir is that. Okay, neo-noir as just sort of pure procedural. It might be a different set of movies. Neo-noir as a sort of a attempt or gesture towards realism. Um, neo-noir with extreme visual style. The, a number of different ways that we might go at it. But um, one of those, you know, sort of last of the semester kind of modules as we're talking about twentieth and twenty late 20th and 21st century noir, mm. um, that would be where we'd already seen some of these base texts. We'd probably already seen The Postman Always Rings Twice. We'd probably already seen uh, Vertigo. Then now this is what we would do with it as we look at what contemporary filmmakers have done trying to move forward. So that would be the module. I like it. Within that. So there you go, friends. Your syllabus just got a lot longer. I am uh, now, of course, thinking of what if we had gotten to see Jimmy Stewart in a Jane Campion movie? It's just the thing that I'm thinking about. We'd have seen all of Jimmy Stewart. Uh, oh, you want to you wanna see me do what? <laughs> I, uh, there are so many lines that I want to say. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> in a Jimmy Stewart accent. Uh, anyway, um, I think it's time to get down to business. That sounded like Bill Clinton. It did sound like Bill Clinton. Not a Jimmy Stewart. Um, It's business time. I feel your pain. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, there's 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 a similarity there. Yeah, that's there's they're not too dissimilar. Well, there's a little bit of southern there in that voice crack. I think the only the only separation is I think Uh, Bill Clinton's got a little bit of Elvis Presley mixed uh, in. uh, They're adjacent, uh, sort of the way that HW is adjacent to John Wayne. You do you know this uh, bit? Dana Carvey would say that uh, what how you do HWs, you just take John Wayne and tighten up his ass. Oh, (laughs) not gonna do it. Uh, Yeah, 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 I'm with you. Yeah, (laughs) that's a good Dana Carvey bit. Uh, Let's talk about this this freaking movie. What Arthur's already talked about this sort of haunting opening, and that was one of the first notes that I made. Is I love this opening, just giving you this dissonant chords, kind of haunting vocals, and such a happy, hopeful song. In case Sarah, Sarah, yeah. Are we to think Hitchcock thoughts with this with Doris Day in the Man Who Knew Too Much? No, because I think Gigi when I think Case Sarah, Sarah. Okay, is that it? Okay, I I was just curious where the referentiality was there because I didn't really pick up a lot of. Man who knew too much kind of vibes off of no, it. No, I, I don't go to that. Okay. We just sort of get this, a lot of photography of, of the sort of the New York locales we'll be seeing throughout the movie. And, and for me, it just creates this mood that the, the film does such a great job of maintaining as far as, you know, it's not in a hurry, right? We've, we've talked about this as a mystery film a lot up until this point, but it's not like busy in terms of plotting. It, it do, sort of does have a loose shaggy vibe. Uh, which, again, I can see being off-putting to general audiences. You can see being a big part of why this wasn't successful. But I, I think that that just spooky as hell opening really sets the tone for that kind of loose structure that the film has. It's yeah. sort of, here's the vibe that the movie is trying to cultivate, and now here are a bunch of scenes that cultivate that vibe. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and again, a, a big part of how that vibe is cultivated is in set design. I, I was thinking about bar rooms and I was thinking about apartments, especially. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've already mentioned, you know, an obviously scuzzy bathroom. The but bo- yeah. but it's, it's not like that over the top kind of like the worst bathroom in all of Scotland yeah. uh, in your train spottings. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's just like, well, yes, man. 
That's about how bad they are. Yep. You know, um, it, it really is a gesture towards realism. I was going to say, I mean, it, it feels like that uh, taking realism and then maybe just adding a layer of embellishment to it, right? It's it's probably seedier than a, a regular bar bathroom, but not by much. Yeah. There is an earnest honesty to what, what's For going the on in the production design. Yeah, yeah you yeah. hear you hear New Yorkers no. talk about those Lower East Side bars. And, yeah. Uh, this all sounds accurate. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I mean, here's another sort of hyper-realism. The, the English teacher who's always sort of grabbing these quotes, right? The poetry, of, of these, yeah. Not, poetry in motion. That, yeah. that truly, truly, if you are uh, a person in the language arts, yes, you do when you see something like that, pay attention to it. But are you usually quite that disciplined and do it? No, not typically. Yeah, I mean, especially for her character, it seems like a weird thing because she's like really it, more though. interested in language and slang, as far as we can tell. That's true. And for her to be, I mean, yeah, I mean, things would stick out. I think it's a fun little thing she does. I think for a teacher, you know, that's some reflective it's, moments. It's a rule of cool kind of thing. It makes it makes the yeah. character cool. It's a Royale with cheese conversation. Is what yeah. I'm trying to say. Totally, and I think that's fair. And I, again, I think for her it being seeming to have a sort of creative writing focus, I think that aspect of it makes it make sense. I I do love that slang is her thing. I wish we got more of that. But yeah, I, the, I, the, her writing down disarticulated. This is a moment that I think about. Yeah, uh, uh, just as far as like times we kind of get a glimpse into like her her thought process on on like what's interesting to her yeah i i think a side note there is that that does feel like maybe the weakest part of this is her teacher mm. attribute because we really get feel like that is a means to an end mm -hmm. to get her to connected with this one character who gets set up as a red herring late yeah. in the film mm -hmm. Uh, but I, I think it's interesting that the subway almost becomes a safe space for her. Mm. I think because of the comfort of those poetry moments, I think that's a time for her to reflect and become attuned in a way that no other place that she goes to allows for her to be. And so I think it's just an interesting moment in transit. Though there. not necessarily does the poetry always comfort. I think about the Dante's Inferno opening yeah. line. Like that's just, you know, I've gone mm -hmm. on the wrong path now. Yeah. Right. Well, it's just what makes it such an interesting interlude, right? Because you can read so those those little snippets of poetry allow you to read so much into like yeah. what's going on in the film. Yeah. Right. And uh, I agree. It just does such a good job of just cultivating that mood. Yeah. And thematically reinforcing what's mm -hmm. happening. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned Cornelius already. Uh, as a red herring, mm. uh, I think Cornelius works a lot, uh, and this is not an original observation. Jordan Cyril's points this out on the blank check episode of uh, the discussing in the cup. But Cornelius, as uh, you know, writing this paper about John Wayne Gacy, right, where he's sort of making excuses for him, and again, uh, Cyril's points out that he he does sort of works to cultivate the or works is to highlight the theme that this movie has, which is the ways in which men will make excuses for each other, right? Because we we get this with uh, Malloy. Uh, mm -hmm. making excuses yep. for his partner. His yeah. partner tried to kill his wife, and they, yeah. they are all sort of making a joke about it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he's got a water pistol now. Yeah. Yeah, so it is It is sort of an interesting way to to have Cornelius, like, just this this sort of conspiracy theory-having guy. Yeah. Uh, but again, we, we get some real purchase with Cornelius, right? Like, it goes on, we've talked about the makeup work in this movie, right? After he has an encounter with the police, he is beat up yeah and we don't really remark upon it because the movie like is trusting you to put the dots together on that one like that's just what happens yeah 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 that's what happens if you have an interaction with the police uh especially if you're not a white dude yeah um but uh, yeah i think it's such a great little moment uh there's so many good moments that just sort of make astute observations about the police and i think a lot of that comes from one you've got ruffalo doing the actorly thing of hanging out with a bunch of detectives and then um the author of the novel whose name is escaping me at the moment spent a lot of time with homicide detectives mm -hmm. and uh you know I, I the observation that uh, both of them made uh is is that you know you just have these guys that kind of are doing whatever they want and with very little oversight and that that is sort of the life of a detective is just like kind of going where you please because right. you have a badge and you say you're investigating a homicide people let you do whatever you want mm -hmm. pretty pretty wild <laughs> to think about well and i think the movie does uh, something interesting in terms of characterization I, I i'm thinking about uh kevin bacon's character i'm thinking about cornelius and i'm thinking about ruffalo's for malloy yeah, yeah, Giovanni, Giovanni Malloy. Yeah, what that, a great cop that, name! Well, absolutely, that is, I mean, we've covered all the types of New York cop there are uh, with that particular name. But anyway, uh, what's interesting about those characters, though, is that you find that although he makes excuses for a lot of bad behavior, we don't really see any bad behavior per se on his part. But we are all the time we get these inklings like you're going to do something bad, yeah, right. 
Uh, and and when, then with Cornelius, although he is very interested in John Wayne Gacy, we get these sort of impressions that, you know, this is generally just a good guy, a student. Yes. Right. And then he acts very badly at one point. Well, I, did, I don't want to have sex with you. I have, what? No. Which is just classic rejection shit. It's right, so right. funny. Which, yeah. uh, well, on the other hand, we got Malloy, like, uh, like classically, like, waiting, not classically, but um, progressively waiting for consent, you know, interestingly enough, you know, which is fascinating. Malloy is so fucking sexy. Yeah. Um, be whatever you want. So you've got that. And then you've got Kevin Bacon, who is, uh, again, very much a TV doctor. <laughs> so funny. The, just the idea of this guy who played a doctor was like, once the doctor clouts, it was now going to medical school. It's so funny. Just like a like great the reverse a- Ken Jung. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but, you know, which is, again, bananas, but also really sort of hyper neurotic. Right, mm, and and, mm-hmm. and and then those, I'm, I'm thinking about the line from Lord of the Rings. They talk about Aragorn, where he he um, they expect a servant of the enemy to look fair and feel foul, mm. and how they're surprised because Aragorn kind of looks foul and feels fair, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, you sure. know the the, the the idea that you know the way in which you sort of suspect, you know, how you figure out the bad guys. And, and, and the movie really interestingly plays with this is what your sort of impression would be, and then they actually turn out slightly. New monster yeah. different. This yeah. is, you know, and, and working against those impressions and types. Because I'm gonna, honestly, I'm gonna tell you what the ner- uh, I was very much thrown off by the Kevin Bacon red herring. I expected him to be the killer. It, oh. I really did. I thought it was strong, but almost a little too on the nose. Yeah, like when he's out in the garden, it's like oh, and and that early track where he's following them down the street hmm. that feels very much like setting up this guy's probably stalking them. I've got a good one for you though, Nick Nick Demici and Demici. How do you say his name? The guy that plays Richie Rodriguez. Uh, oh, yeah. If it's Italian, it's Dimici. It's Dimici. Is it two C's? It's uh, D-A-M-I-C-I. It should be Dimici. Uh, I don't know. He's the guy from Stakeland. We, oh. we know him. We oh, love him. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's the co-writer of, co-writer of most of Jim Mickelton's movies. Uh, we Are What We Are. Mm-hmm. I know you like that one. I do like We Are What uh, We Are. Co-writer on that one. So he's great. But uh, I, I went into this movie knowing he was the killer. And mm. a great moment is uh, in when they're in the coffee shop, when uh, they're, they're just hanging out in the coffee shop talking to each other. He's like a table over. Really? And he's just sitting there in the background. Oh. That's Jane nice. Campion. That's, cool. That's just good yeah, filmmaking, baby. I don't baby. think I noticed that at yeah, all. He's like in the background listening to their conversation. Interesting. Uh, and then gets up and leaves after he gets the information he wants. Yeah. I, yeah. I do think Cornelius is probably the weakest of the red herrings yeah. for me because mm-hmm. that moment late in the film just comes so out of left field mm-hmm. for his, I think, for what yeah. we've seen from that character. And I think he's giving us more thematically than he is giving us plot, right? Yeah. Like, I, I, don't, I don't feel like he... He's yeah sure if he if you wanted to be a red herring he can be you know if you if you're like really yeah. keyed into like trying to figure out who it is I can see yeah. you taking the bait on that one but for me it really just does feel like a, a furthering of this this theme of like male behavior yeah as far as like the 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 aversion to rejection with with the, the scene where they they do sort of almost have a, a sexual encounter uh, and again the the making excuses for John Wayne Gacy mm-hmm. uh, very very interesting stuff out of him uh, but again yeah I I think you're right sort of a a non-red herring, cause just because of how late it is. There's yeah. a couple of decisions late in the movie that, like, I think I'm mostly on board with Jennifer Jason Lee uh, becoming a victim of the, the murderer, but it does sort of feel like it belongs in a more melodramatic movie, in, in a way, that, for me. It, kinda, it makes I mean, sense. It makes yeah, sense in yeah. terms of victim selection based when on when you find out who the killer is. It right. totally makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. But it does sort of in the moment. It does kind of. And it feels set up for pretty early on, kind I of, yeah. That, yeah. I mean, we knew somebody close is probably going to have to die, and she's sure. the only other character here. Well, and it, it's either going to be her or Patrick Watts' name outside the... That's true. The strip God, Patrice O'Neill is <laughs> Patrice so O'Neil. good. Holy shit. I was like, the, is, the is that Patrice O'Neill? Yeah, it is. So, <laughs> yeah, you kind of forget it's him, right? When he first popped up, I was like, wait, that's... Is that... Is that... No. He's so good. Incredible. He's a flamer. <laughs> just so, just so incredible. The this, the scene he has with uh, the detective. Yeah. So or not the is it the detective that he has the scene with? I don't remember. I put my earring back in. That's yeah. Scene. yeah. Uh, no, it's, it's Cornelius. It's, that's right. That's, yeah. He's got a scene with Cornelius. And, yeah, that's yeah, who it Cornelius is. is not having a good time. That's at all. so funny. But um, anyway, the her her sister dying makes me think of a line she has early in the movie, right? When they're talking about 
the story to the lighthouse. And mm-hmm. uh, she she asks her student how many ladies have to die for a story to be interesting. Yeah. Classic murder story stuff, man. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. just like a good observation about the nature of crime stories. Yeah. Is is like the the uh, the Amy Schumer sketch, uh, Dead Girl Town, has a, has mm. a similar observation, yeah. right? Uh, just about like the ways in which these crime story narratives feed on uh, the the distressed woman, the dead woman, and and like what a the body. And I, I think both with this film and with uh, her TV show Top of the Lake, I think Jane Campion does a really good job of sort of interrogating our our sort of detective story themes, right? Just be because. That doesn't, and I, I think what this movie gets, and what Top of the Lake also gets, is that just because something is sorted doesn't mean it's not true, and right. just because something is thematically like unfeminist doesn't mean you can not make a feminist story about it. Right? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Well, and I and I think she does successfully do just exactly that. Yeah. Uh, because well, obviously she solves her own crime, she takes her own agency, she uh, again is unafraid to explore her own sexuality and mm-hmm. uh the, the the camera and in terms of the filmmaking process from campion is not afraid of female pleasure which is one of the yeah. real problems that the ratings board has mm. uh we yeah. don't they don't mind sex in movies for a rated r film um what they really are troubled by is when women like it uh which is bizarre um but nonetheless it is what it is well, it's just yeah it's a very squeamish ratings board is yeah what we, what we yeah. have I mean, and they're, they're they're squeamish again about female pleasure specifically sure um again it's a it's a woman's o face that bothers them not a dude's yeah which is again bizarre so that th- there's all of those kind of things at work and i i do think though this is where i mean the the, the lighthouse reference to how many dead women does it take and uh, that, again, our, our female character does so without, again, the sort of interaction of the, the last minute saving showing mm-hmm. up of Mark Ruffalo. That is, uh, I think, good preventative medicine for this. And yeah. you sort of see this sort of female rescue kind of thing sometimes played out in uh, like Spellbound or, or, or a movie like that where it turns out that it's, we have a home fatale, you know, in the case of Gregory Peck's character mm-hmm. is being rescued by Ingrid Bergman. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sometimes you, you sort of see things play out that way. But I was thinking a lot about another David Lynch film, actually, or David Lynch thing. Um, uh, one theory about the idea behind Twin Peaks, sure, uh, which I just recently saw this uh, a video that sort of describes some of this. And part of the thing that Twin Peaks does is it refuses to allow it to be regular TV murder. TV murder in which we don't care about who died, we care about who did it. Mm -hmm. And we are not going to spend some time with their family and their grief. We might have a scene given towards that. But it's all about these detectives solving this crime and doing this. And Twin Peaks refuses to do that, and it's all this exploration of the grief of this entire community that's affected by the loss of this one person. Uh, I, I think that this film, though not doing that is still exploring some things in terms of violence in a very different kind of way. Um, because it is not fundamentally by the, by, from the perspective of those who are investigating and interrogating just the who did it part of it. Those are just sort of reckoning with these are the circumstances under which I could become a victim to violence, that there are victims to violence all around me, that there is this sort of danger throughout, and how can I take agency of myself to defend myself against potential violence, which, again, Meg Ryan does quite successfully at the end of the film. And so I, I think that it, it, is, it is feminist for sure, but it really is just anti-ideological uh, in, in sort of a in hegemonic kind of sense. It is, it's working against those sort of standard ways in which we, we put together these kinds of thrillers. I'll tell you what's not anti-ideological. Tell me what. Is Nick DeMasi, DeMisi, uh singing a jaunty little tune to himself as he shows Meg Ryan pictures of heads and then Jane Campion cuts to the American flag. Mm-hmm. That's cinema, baby. <laughs> That's making movies. Uh, what a great scene. I've ever, there's like a string of scenes uh, of her interacting with first Ruffalo alone in her apartment and yeah. then Ruffalo and his partner in the car and then Ruffalo and his partner at the bar. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like the first three times she interacts with them. Yeah. Each time, the power of law enforcement is sort of implicit in these scenes. And it's just like, you feel not just like the potential danger of being a woman alone in a room with a dude, but like the danger of being a person alone with a cop, which is, is not something that we always think about. But I think the way we treat the homicide detectives in this film does sort of impart the, the implicit danger that these guys represent just because they are so 
as we've already alluded to a little bit, they are sort of unmoored and un- unobserved. Um, but I, I love the scene in the bar. You, you kind of mentioned uh, Ruffalo. We keep waiting for him to have a slip up and right like in the bar before his partner gets there. He's so smooth. Yeah, he's so smooth. But we get these little glimpses, right? He, he says the F slur about his hands, right? Talks mm-hmm. about feminine hands. And then when his partner shows up, he's sort of keeping up with him in terms of being a bro. Right. And it is sort of these interesting slip ups where like you see this very like vulnerable sort of. Uh, uh, tentative, uh, attentive to her needs as far as like what she's looking for. He he wants to bone down, but he is like very much putting the ball in her court as mm-hmm. far as like I will do whatever you want to do and be whatever kind of guy you want me to be. And like he's able to do that, but at the same time, like can't let go of the 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 brotherhood of of the badge, right? Is can't it the not brotherhood do of the badge, the, the it, or is it what he has to do to get by? You know, because I, I wonder sometimes which one's the mask. Right? That's what's such an yeah. interesting thing about his character. Right. It's yeah. hard to tell. I tend to believe his moments alone, his vulnerable moments, are the truer moments. I don't know. I think so. I think you're right. You know, because he seems like a guy who's just overly trying to be this mustache-wearing Italian and Irish cop who I, makes, you know, gay slurs. Yeah. But you I, know, I, and, and they, they <laughs> come out of his Italian mouth. Italian-Irish cop. Yeah, man. It's so funny. Giovanni Malloy is just so good. <laughs> <laughs> I can't stop laughing at it. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, but I, I, I do think that that is uh, he, he is, he is forced to wear that. This is, yeah. his, this is his adaptation for survival. It feels unnatural coming out of his mouth, yeah. right? And, yeah, and not just because we love Mark Ruffalo, although we do, we do. Uh, but yeah, when he's trying to kind of keep up with his partner's banter, it feels like a put on. I, yeah. I think the guy telling the story about the chicken lady—that's that's the real that's real detective rough, Malloy, yeah. which is interesting. Let's talk about uh, how it's okay for uh, bad things to happen to teen boys. Oh, (laughs) just for a moment. So the chicken lady story is the story of how Mark Ruffalo learned to be a world-class lover. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But it is a story of a underage boy being taken advantage of by an adult woman. And it is like played kind of erotically. Like it is played complicatedly. I think Jane Campion like gets that it is a, the story he's telling is complicated as Mm. far as the dynamics go. But it is very erotic. Like the scene is supposed to be sexy because it immediately leads to them having sex for the second time. And it is still a story about a young boy being taken advantage of. And it's such an interesting moment in the movie that like it's wrestling with I mean, like FX did a whole mini series, a teacher with Kate Mara. Like they just did a whole mini series about this. And then like one dialogue scene in the cut, like man, just it. capture all of that. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, our culture is like okay with this being sexy double standard, to some extent. right? Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the story is, you know, it, this, you're you're obviously um, deflowering and despoiling uh, a young virgin girl if this is the case, mm-hmm. and um, if you're a boy, you're just the luckiest guy alive. There you have you're it. Now I mean, a that, superhero. Yeah yeah. You, yeah, yeah. Look what you did. You had sex yeah. with an adult. Look yeah. at you. Yeah. yeah. Not it's no, it's actually bad. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I totally, no, we agree too. But I mean, but it's like agreeing that that is the the double the standard, cultural double standard. It is, and it absolutely. And again, I think Campion gets that and is like able to just do so much without really doing much at all, which I think is so interesting. Again, it's it's one of a thousand interesting things about like the sexuality of this particular movie. Too. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's render a verdict, I think, on In the Cut. Unless yeah, because some... we're going to be here all day. We could keep yeah, talking about it. It's... Are all cops homophobic? An interesting question you ask, Meg Ryan. Tonight at six. <laughs> <laughs> a question that the masses have wanted to know for generations, and maybe we'll never answer it. I do not have an answer. Uh, but I, I do, do have an but... answer to the question, shelf or trash, but I want to hear yours first. What do you say, Arthur? Um... I think just from sheer lack of availability, this needs to be on a shelf. Uh, I think in the world of the murder thriller as well, it's placed in a really interesting place. We didn't really talk about it, but as a follow-up to Seven, uh, I haven't seen it, but probably in Prelude to Memories of a Murder as well, I feel like there's a lot in those three movies alone that carry that genre. And so I think in the cut really resides uh, in a you know higher echelon of... Uh, murder thriller psychosexual thriller movies very so, yeah very good very good what do you say dalton yeah i'm with arthur like it's it's essential as like as far as its perspective on on a murder mystery goes I, there's not a lot of movies like it as far as big studio erotic thrillers directed by women there's not a lot of those especially not in the united states um so i think those things alone like make it absolutely shelfable this is this is a movie that has long been uh 
not given its due. And it's very exciting that it's starting to kind of get this critical reappraisal over the last few years because it is such an interesting film. And I'm, I, I love it. Yeah, it's shelfable for me. Very good, very good. Um, I don't care what else is on the Blu-ray with uh, the Blu-ray box set with Kevin Bacon. I'll, I want all the other five too because I I'm want, sure they're interesting. I, I, want, I want this one that bad. I say it's worth shelving it along with five other movies that I didn't even pick. Uh, that's I, I, what, it's that good. Yeah, yeah it, it, it's that good. I think it's that valuable. I think it's that important. Um, Arthur is pulling up the list and I want to see what the rest of the movies are. Uh, it is uh, the big picture, Flatliners, nice. Hollow Man, okay. Trapped in the Cut, Where the Truth Lies. All right. Uh, a six Degrees collection. It's, weird, it's still worth it. A weird, it's weird It's worth it for Flatliners, Hollow Man, and In the Cut. Just by itself, yeah. Yeah, yeah you got, you got uh, Verhoeven, you've got... Um, Jane Campion and you've got Schumacher. Like those are three heavy hitters right there. I don't yeah. know about the other three. Fifteen but. bucks, you can get those six movies on Amazon right, right now. It? On all on Blu-ray. Whip out of Bezos. Wow, wow. So fifteen dollars, you two could own all six of those. I, I, I and I stand by my decision. I would go ahead and shell five other movies sight unseen for this one. For so. that. So there I you go. Love it. Uh, all right. Well, there you go. Um, that is our thought, or those are our thoughts on In the Cut, uh, directed by Jane Campion, uh, starring Meg Ryan. Dalton, can you tell our dear listener how they might be part of the conversation with a lot of us? I sure can, Dustin. If you want to send us your fanfic about Arthur and Dustin, uh, <laughs> the English teachers getting involved in a murder mystery, no. you can send that long-form feedback to goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. This ends with me in a washing machine. Uh, which, yeah, ooh, God, yeah. yeah. If anybody's getting fridged, it's you. It's me. <laughs> I deserve it. I have to or pay you're the, the killer. I have to grimy, pay the grimy penalty. murder scenes and tender kisses. I'm sure the fanfic would be My Love. My memoir. <laughs> <laughs> if you got short form feedback for us, you can find us on Twitter at Good Trash Media. That's one more time on Twitter at Good Trash Media. Don't go over there unless you're already on that website. Don't do it to yourself. Uh, last but certainly not least, we're on Patreon. Uh, it's patreon.com forward slash GTM if you want to help us keep the lights on. There's all kinds of fun goodies for you over there. Uh, more information about what you can get out of the, the arrangement at patreon.com forward slash GTM. Arthur? It's marathon time, isn't it? That's right. It's been a while. Ooh. It has been. Next week, we kick off a brand new marathon to start the summer. And we are starting the summer of Sandy. And we're going to be taking a look at the career of Sandra Bullock. And we get things started by logging on to the net. We've covered a lot of Sandra Bullock movies, too. We've covered Speed. We've covered Demolition Man. So we've sort of like laid... Yeah, we've kind of laid the groundwork for her early career and even done some coverage of her later career. So I'm excited about this marathon. It'd be very, very fun. I love me some Sandy Bullock. So there you go. You keep watching. We'll keep talking and we'll see you all next time.